You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. For most of the past two years, they have been showered with praise. From those of us who relied on them to stay safe, of course, but also from some of the most powerful people in this country. I'm talking about the grocery store workers who kept the shelves stocked, the farmers who ensured we had food on the table, and the women and men in uniform who helped care for our most vulnerable. To all of our frontline workers, thank you. Our country will be forever grateful. You're absolutely amazing. I've said this even before the pandemic, you're the backbone. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. These frontline workers, often immigrants or other foreign nationals who arrived in Canada any number of ways, did the jobs that so many of us were lucky to avoid, especially during the year before vaccines were widely available. But even as that was happening, thousands of them were being told by the government that they weren't welcome here. Thank you for that work you did, but your visa has expired, your asylum claim has been rejected, Whatever it is, now you have to go. Is it dangerous right now to get on a plane? Is it dangerous in the country you're headed back to? Will you lose access to vaccines or to healthcare or to your family? Sorry. Anyway, thanks again. This is the story of Canada's deportations during this pandemic, which is the story of just how much thanks some aspiring Canadians got for doing the dirty work for the rest of us. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Isabel McDonald is a researcher and writer based in Montreal. She outlined this issue in The Walrus. Hey, Isabel. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me on, and hello to your listeners. You are most welcome. Uh, I'm really glad you're talking about this issue. And why don't you just start by telling me about uh, Jatinder Singh? Who is he? What's his story? Well, he was a a frontline worker who th- throughout the first year of the pandemic in Canada labored as a truck driver transporting food and other essential goods while a lot of people stayed home, um, sheltered in place to protect themselves from from COVID. So like a lot of frontline workers, he was a migrant who did not have an authorized immigration status um, by the time he was got into a, it was a very minor um, collision in which another vehicle hit his truck and normal circumstances. There would have just been a small police report. He would have continued on with his work, which obviously Canadians were relying on because we've had a, we've had a real, a real problem recently with there not being enough workers to carry out essential work. Mm -hmm. And instead though, because he had, um, he no longer had an authorized immigration status he was brought into police custody, handed over to the Canadian immigration authorities, and they ended up deporting him um, last year in the midst of the pandemic. And also at a t- he was deported to India, his country of origin, at a time when the Canadian government was what had barred all flights, incoming flights from India because of the dangers of the Delta variant. 
So thus, a member of a yeah, he, he was he had been very well integrated into into a local community in in Canada in Montreal where he'd settled. He was also performing essential work, and yet in the midst of this health crisis, Canada deported him. How tough was his case going through uh, border services? Like, how much of a fight did he get to put up? What were his options? How did it work? He had arrived in Canada in 2017 as an asylum seeker because members of his family had been targeted for their involvement in political political protests and political movements in in India. And um, his brother, for instance, had been attacked for participating in um, a protest around farmers' rights in the Punjab, which is where his family is from. And like many people who come to Canada as asylum seekers, it he faced, I mean, it's a, a very, very difficult process to a stat, to provide all of the documents that you need to provide within a very... Um, limited time frame to be able to prove that you meet the conditions for asylum. Mm -hmm. And so his case was rejected, as many asylum seekers' cases are. And he tried to appeal that decision on the grounds of both the fact that there was a deadly pandemic that was at the time particularly lethal in India, where Canada was planning to return him to, Mm -hmm. and also on the grounds that it was dangerous for him because already members of his family had been had been attacked and he feared for his life as well if he was suddenly returned to India. He and his his family, he had a cousin, he has a cousin who lives in still in Montreal and they did everything they could to try to stop this deportation. There was a significant uh, mobilization by migrant justice activists who rallied around around him and also called had a protest calling on the government to change course and not deport him um but all of this in the end was was not possible for either his family himself or or these activists to stop the deportation so the canadian government proceeded in mid june of last year um, 2021, with deporting him. Is his case unique? How many other uh, Jatinders have we deported during this pandemic? Well, the statistics that I got from the Canada Border Services Agency, which date from um, February of this year, so February of 2022, by that time, um, so if we, from I asked for them to tell me how many people had been um, removed, which is the word that that um, officials used when they talk about deportations. They say how many they track how many people they've removed, and there were more than eighteen thousand since the the World Health Organization mm. declared COVID nineteen a pandemic. More than eighteen thousand people who were removed, according to the Canada Border Services Agency. Um, which is actually, and actually in 2000, the first year of the pandemic, 2020, there were actually more people who were removed, according to the Canadian government's own statistics, than there had been in any previous year since 2015. Yeah, removals did not slow down um, during the pandemic. There are some, some. Wasn't there a pause on removals and deportations for some time uh, when the pandemic began? 
Yes. And this is something that many organizations, including the the United Nations um, Network on Migration, strongly advocated at the outset of the pandemic. They said governments should absolutely stop removing people or deporting people because it is extremely dangerous and it poses all kinds of risks, both for the people who are being deported and for the people in the countries where they're being deported to, which often have less capacity to protect their populations from COVID because they have even more limited health infrastructure than what we have, for instance, here in Canada, more limited access to vaccinations. Um, International authorities really, really strongly urged governments to not deport anybody. And Around the world, there were gov- governments took this into account, at least initially. There were some outliers, the United States being one example, which just continued on deporting people. But Canada did have initially a pause on removals that came into effect shortly after the pandemic began. So this was, it wasn't a full, it wasn't a, a complete, um, a complete ban on any deportations, but there were far fewer people who were removed um, in the initial in the initial months after the pandemic. Especially, this had an impact if it was for people people who had been in situation a situation like Jatinder's. So this is somebody who came to Canada as an asylum seeker. He wasn't able to prove um, that his case had enough supporting documentation, and so. In the end, his claim was rejected, but there was never any question that he posed any kind of a threat to Canadian society, that there was any kind of security risk in him being here. He was providing a really valuable service to Canada by working as a frontline worker. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't any question that, that he posed a threat in any, in any way whatsoever. And so for people like him, Canada initially did stop deportations in the name of um, of public health and also because it was very, the Canadian government recognized how logistically difficult it was um, for even, I mean, flights, a lot of flights had stopped. I mean, they were, they were actually physically in many cases just unable to keep deporting people. Right. So there was a halt that was instituted, but then that was lifted in the midst of an unprecedented outbreak of COVID in Canada during the second wave in the at the end of October 2020. Did they give a reason for this resumption? And what was it and and who fought back? Well, they announced this very suddenly with no notice. The Canadian government announced this very suddenly with no notice. Basically said that there the 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 initial reasons um, that the suspension of deportations had been put in effect no longer held held because government offices were reopening. They also they also talked about how vaccinations were now becoming available. Of course, vaccination really hadn't started in very many countries at all at that time. There were. Um, there were there were scientific developments around the development of vaccines, but um, vaccines were not really in effect at that time in in October 2020. Um, yet they used that as a as one of the reasons that they were they were lifting this um, the suspension on deportations. This provoked an immediate outcry from from a lot of groups working with refugees and migrants. Lawyers who work with refugees, um, migrant justice groups, 
Ontario Legal Aid also also condemned this move. Um, there were many letters that were sent to the Canadian authorities who had made this decision, pleading with them not to do this, and warning that this could lead to the further spread of COVID-19, which is obvious, was obviously um, the last thing anyone needed in the middle of a pandemic is to take, take actions that were going to cause further infections and lead to the further spread of a global epidemic. Yet these... These warnings went unheeded and Canada proceeded to um, deport people. I remember that time in, you know, the fall of 2020. Everything was still mostly closed or virtual. Like, how did these people access services to try to fight their deportations? You know, I imagine hearings and advocacy and all that kind of stuff would have been difficult to to get to. Yeah, well, this is exactly one of the points that was made by um, the many groups that that opposed this decision and that pleaded with the government not to proceed with its plan, announced plans to start deporting people again, um, because Already, it's extremely difficult for anybody facing deportation to put together a case, the kind of case, the kind of evidence that is needed go to be able to access a fair judicial hearing. Mm -hmm. Often, it's very difficult for people to obtain documents from their, from their home countries where if they've been tortured by the government, it's very difficult to get the government to furnish evidence that you've been tor tortured. People are often fleeing in the context of, um, you know, they're, they're fleeing for their lives. They don't necessarily have access to, to the documents that they, that they would need to present to immigration authorities in Canada. So already it's difficult for people to access these documents. And then you, it's, you're completely right that a lot of government offices continued to be, to be closed or functioning in a remote, in a remote capacity that was the, that, um, that slowed down um, bureaucratic processes that might've already taken a long time. There was also the problem of people having access to legal counsel. Many, many, many migrants facing deportation don't speak one of Canada's official languages and so rely on the services of interpreters. Um, and during the pandemic, a lot of legal counsel started happening remotely. Already there were hurdles in this process of trying to fight a deportation, but now suddenly they need to, they need to be doing this through remote meeting technologies via programs like Teams, which generally work much better if you have access to the latest, um, uh, uh, the latest technology, uh, a new laptop or, or smartphone, which not everybody has access to. And then you get the problem of language barriers and you're having, um, you're having to rely on a, the service of a, somehow find a way of getting your interactions interpreted via this, these remote technologies. So it became, it became more difficult um, for people to access the kind of legal support that they needed. And listen, I mean, deportation is an issue that we could talk about even without uh, a pandemic complicating matters. It would certainly be a, a good grounds for a conversation. But in terms of the pandemic, you know, in terms of what you describe with Jatinder, has anybody been talking about the fact 
that so many of these deportations are people like him who are doing these jobs that we actually like really need right now? And does that come into play anywhere? I know you're you're talking about it, but does that come into play anywhere in the official process? Partly because there are because frontline workers with precarious status and their supporters have really been highlighting this as a major issue. There has been some discussion that has um, filtered up into official discussions. There has even been a program that was that was that was launched, a federal program that was specifically supposed to provide a means for people like failed asylum claimants to be able to stay in Canada and obtain a permanent resident status if they worked in certain frontline occupations in Canada during the pandemic. However, that program is restricted to people who worked in very specific types of healthcare jobs. So, for instance, I've talked to somebody who worked as a janitor in a hospital, and he didn't qualify because he wasn't working as a nurse or um, or as an orderly. And I've talked to somebody else who was who does work as an orderly, but he hadn't worked the right number of hours to be able to qualify. So there are lots of people who you would think should have been helped by this program. If you're working in a hospital, you're somebody who who came to Canada as an asylum seeker, the government doesn't have, have any reason to think you're some sort of criminal. And yet those people are still are still have have been deemed ineligible for that for that program. The, the reporting that the government itself has done on this what has been achieved through this program, um, which was many months ago, but in the in the report that they had, I think there were only there were less than 400 people who had actually been able to obtain a permanent resident status through through this program. Whereas we know that there are thousands of people in Canada who are who have been working in frontline occupations during the pandemic who have a precarious status. And so a lot of migrants that I've talked to, including Jatinder himself and other members of his family and his supporters, from migrant justice groups, all were saying, well, what we need really is a, a broader program that gives people in this situation who have precarious status, who, um, whether or not there's a pandemic on, are generally performing really essential labor in Canadian society. There should be a way for these people to be able to stay in Canada and not face this threat of suddenly being returned to um, their country of origin which in many cases they fled because the situation there was unlivable for for whatever reason, whether it was political violence or extreme economic hardship. People have made sacrifices to come to Canada to build a better life for themselves and their children. And at a time when everybody is complaining about a labor shortage, it seems it seems like a terrible idea to be deporting people, regardless of the pandemic, why not find a way of providing an opportunity for people who are already here, already doing the work to be able to stay rather than deporting them? And um, and suddenly we find that, oh, there aren't enough workers um, to be able to perform this this work. But how many people have we deported? I mean, I think this is the question we need to ask. And could this problem have been in part avoided if we had had a different immigration um system and policy in place. That's a larger question that uh, we could probably explore in a whole other podcast episode. But I do want to ask you before we close here, you know, it doesn't look like uh, deportations are getting walked back. It looks like these are going to 
continue and and I haven't seen anybody talking about broadening the exceptions. So just what would you say to someone who is right now or has a family member right now facing deportation during the pandemic? Um, what should they do? Where should they start? Well, they're definitely not alone. And I think there are really, what I've seen is that there are really important forms of mutual support within and a lot of groups that are, um, whose members often include a lot of people who have a precarious immigration status, who are finding ways of providing mutual support and who are also trying to find ways of, of, of amplifying the demands for change in this system, for political change in the system, because I think that the situation won't get better unless we have some serious policy changes as well. I think that connecting with other people who are facing a similar, who are facing similar challenges and connecting with the organizing work that is being done around this issue seems to me like, um, it seems to me that that is what what will result in change? Certainly with the limited program that we saw that was was launched during the pandemic for frontline healthcare workers, it seems very unlikely that that would have come about at all had it not been for migrants themselves who are speaking out about this issue and their supporters and their families. But I think there also is there is there is something very important that other people in our society, those of us who have um, the privilege of having a, a regular, a, a, a either a regularized immigration status or having been born here or being citizens, is that this is a real a really key issue um, that affects a lot of members of our communities. We absolutely need to change this system so that people like Jatinder are no longer. Um, facing this impossible situation of either living in the shadows or being deported. Isabel, thank you so much for this. Well, thank you so much, Jordan, for the conversation. Isabel McDonald, writing for The Walrus. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can get at us anytime via email, the Big Story Podcast, that's all one word, at rci.rogers.com. You should all know by now that The Big Story is on every podcast player. And indeed, all you got to do is ask your favorite smart speaker to play The Big Story Podcast. If any of that ever doesn't work, by the way, you really should let us know, because we do fix these things. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.